So last week was our first Sunday in Advent, and we introduced this psalm, Psalm 33. And as I told you last week, we're going to take some time to really um, break this down into different sections. And each week we'll extrapolate or kind of extract a predominant theme that we want to explore together. And the one that we looked at last week was joy, right? You look at those first three verses in the constant call to praise that they offer, and uh, this, this call towards joy, and we really looked at that, and the different notions of what praise does, and how praise leads to joy, and how you can have uh, confession, you can have uh, adoration and thankfulness, that it's a command. We, we looked at the methodology uh, with which we give praise. Specifically, we looked at music last week. We also talked about the real important part, which is that it's the righteous and it's the upright that are able to experience that joy and offer that praise, and that we only experience that righteousness through Christ. Right? And so we had a chance to really uh, encourage one another and ultimately try to paint that picture that it's beautiful when brothers and sisters gather together and declare joy to the world and, and make this announcement of what Christ has done uh, and, and what God has done through Jesus. And so we move out of that passage, or those first three verses today, to this idea of love. And, and we do this really with this kind of transitional statement that we're going to find in verses four and five. And as I was reflecting upon what we would be talking about today, uh, I want you to know on the front end that for whatever reason, it just kind of carried a different experience for me this week. You know, a lot of times when you prepare with the responsibility to share God's word and to communicate what, what God is doing, it's a heavy burden, but a lot of times God just ignites something within you, and, and there's this fire that is almost like impossible to contain, and you, and you come, and you want to encourage, you want to urge, and you want to admonish and inspire and do all these different things, and as a result, when you share, that, that's kind of an instinctive way to, to communicate what God has laid on your heart. This time around, uh, it, it felt much different for whatever reason. And, and I, I guess I would just tell you that today, I, I really more than I feel led or stirred to, to preach in that sort of maybe traditional capacity, I just really kind of want to have a conversation today um, and just a little bit more of an informal dialogue. Well, really, it's a one-way conversation, but those are my favorites. And, uh, but more casual about just this, this whole idea of love and, and how important it is. And so let's look at a first couple of foundational things that are taking place in verses four and five, okay? Uh, the first three verses invite us to praise. They invite us towards this joy. And then you have this transitional statement where the psalmist draws our attention to the word of the Lord, which becomes very thematic for the next several verses beyond just the ones we're looking at today. And we have this statement that is starting to tell the reader, this is why you can have joy, right? Th this is why praise makes sense. Because the word of the Lord is true and right. And I love that description. A couple of things that, it, that it's connecting to. Last week we talked in verse one how it says it's fitting for the upright to praise him. And the word that's used there for upright is the same word that's being used here to describe the word of the Lord. And so if you think about last week, we talked about how this word for, for being upright or right is, is conveying this idea that there is a standard. Right? There was a standard that, was, that needed to be met or that needed to be pursued, and, and we wrestled with the fact that we always fall short of that standard last week, but here in verse 4, we're seeing that, that God's word sets that standard. Right? It's, it's God's word that is right and true, and how important that is. Right? That, that's really what I want us to begin to, to really kind of tap into today is, is what is this 
truth that God's word is declaring. Think, think about it through the lens of John's gospel in, in chapter one, right? It's, it's a great uh, introduction to the Advent season. It's where we have this idea that God's word was with God in the beginning, was God, was with God, is God, and then you get further into chapter one and you get this description that says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. God's word is true. It is right. And it is speaking. It is declaring. And it is being declared through Jesus, this word that takes on flesh. And so the question for us today, what is it saying? What is this truth that is being announced, that is being proclaimed? And that's what I want us to really kind of just prepare our hearts to hear this morning. Now, you also find in verses four and five this kind of compilation of attributes. And what we're seeing here is that the psalmist is saying one of the reasons you can give praise is because of who God is. And we talked about that last week, right? That, that a lot of times we find joy, we give praise because of who God is or what he has done or what he is doing or going to do. But right here in verses four and five, this is about his character. This is about his nature. You get these, these terms that are often grouped together within the scriptures, terms like justice, righteousness, faithfulness, unfailing love, right? And, and it begins to convey to us that we have more than just a creator. God is not just a maker, right? He didn't just kind of form things and fashion them into being and then set things in motion and then just drift back to see how it all plays out. But he's intimately involved with the, the, the drama of human history and he's engaged in a way that reveals justice, faithfulness, righteousness, all these incredible attributes. This is the psalmist saying, this is what we get to praise. This is who our God is and aren't we glad? But as I was reading through these first few verses here in verse four and five, the one attribute that to me just really elevates itself that I want us to reflect upon today is that statement in verse five, the earth is full of his unfailing love. That's a remarkable statement. I mean, think about it for a moment. The earth is full of his unfailing love. That, that, that is an incredible verse. That's a verse that'll preach. That's one that's easy to get up here and stand and try to encourage somebody and inspire somebody and evoke a sense of uh, enthusiasm and passion and praise and all those different things. But the more I reflected upon it this week, the harder it was for me to embrace. Because of one simple question, is it really? Is the earth really full of God's unfailing love? And how do I know that? It's one thing to know it because it's in God's word, right? And I, I believe in the authority of scripture. God's word is right and true. If it's there, I believe it. But there is something in me going, but shouldn't we be able to truly be able to just identify it and gravitate towards it and immediately point out, there it is, there's God's love. The earth is full of God's love. And how do we know that to be true? And so I thought, well, let's find some stories. Let, let's find some evidences of God's love today. So here's how I went about it. Um, I, I've got these little newsletter subscriptions that I get on a daily basis that typically provide some form of current event and some editorial comment on it. It's my modern day newspaper. 
right? And uh, I get a chance to see a lot of different articles, a lot of different things going on around the world, and I can follow up on those things. And it becomes a great resource for sermon preparation. A lot of times when I have brought in different stories or research or statistics, it's because I've gone back through, uh, I get these emails in my inbox, and then I put them all in a folder in my inbox that I can go back and search different topics and different things. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. That was really fascinating. That, that applies to what we're talking about. And so I thought, I'm going to go through those newsletters, I'm going to go through those headlines, and I'm going to find something that helps us go, yeah, there you go, there's, there's God's love. And the reality was, couldn't find anything. Let me give you a sampling of the headlines that I came across just in the last couple of weeks. Okay, I'm going to give you several. Candidate steps down from presidential race. Congressman pleads guilty to misusing campaign funds. London terror attack shows the risks of freed former jihadis. Iran is experiencing its deadliest political unrest in 40 years. Fertility rate hits a record low in 2018. Life expectancy drops again. 36% of Americans have had packages stolen from their front porch. Defense secretary demands resignation of Navy secretary. Pope Francis calls for abolishing nuclear weapons. New study ranks the dumbest states in the country. Israeli prime minister indicted on charges of bribery and fraud. Pastor killed in a car crash on his way home from church. Country music star arrested for DUI. 90% of employees have come into the office while dealing with cold or flu symptoms. Don't be that person. More than 100 Iranian protesters believed to be killed. Two jail workers charged in Epstein case. Hong Kong protests intensify. Bishop chosen to investigate church sex abuse is himself accused. Two students killed in California school shooting. Only 11% of practicing Christians know their purpose. 29% of Americans dislike canned cranberry sauce but still eat it anyway. What kind of world are we living in when you're forced feeding yourself cranberry sauce? The world sounds miserable at times though, doesn't it? I mean, I went through it. Couldn't find one. Now, one story where I thought, there it is, there's, there's God's love, All right? Now, let's say I had found one, one or two. Even if I had found those, the preponderance of evidence would have still been tilted towards those that were disturbing to where I still would have had a hard time going, see, it's, it's full of his love. So then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm going about this the wrong way. Maybe, maybe this isn't the right way to do this because maybe these Newsletters that I've subscribed to, maybe that's part of their, their shtick, right? Negative news is what tracks. That's what people click. And so maybe that's what I'm being fed. So I should go seek out the good stories. And I, surely I'll find them then. So I, I did. I, I searched feel-good stories. I didn't search love stories because I figured I'd get a lot of movies and Nicholas Sparks novels. And I was like, that's not really what I'm after. So I did feel-good stories. And I found some good stories, uh, a lot of, uh, it, was, it was a lot of these uh, like links that'll say best feel good stories of 2019 or 2018. It'd kind of be this weird compilation of stuff that's taken place. And here's kind of what you would find. Uh, a lot of videos of people dancing and having a good time and, and it was funny. Uh, a, a lot of stories of maybe somebody younger raising money for a good cause. A lot of cool things happening in that regard. Uh, some stories of first responders saving somebody from a difficult situation. You want to know what the most consistent feel-good story is, though, the dominant theme? You know what it was? Pets. You know how many cat videos are out there? 
and dog videos, which dogs I get, man. Everybody should have a dog. And if you don't, shame on you, right? But cats, and, but seriously, it was like pets. Now listen, I look at all these stories and they did make me feel good. Like I laughed. I thought they were cool. They were inspiring. I don't know that they made me feel loved. And so again, I'm like, okay, so, so how do I really know this to be true? And what we're stepping into is really an age-old dilemma, right? This, this is a question that many have wrestled with. If God is good and God is loving, why is there so much suffering? How do I make sense of this? If, if there is a God, then he must not be good to allow all of this to take place. That is a real question. And so when you read verse five and you say the earth is filled with his unfailing love, if you're really going to stop and meditate and reflect on it, you have to deal with this dilemma. What do we do with a world filled with suffering, but a word that says it's filled with unfailing love? And so this is a question many have asked. C.S. Lewis even wrestled with this, right? This is one of the reasons he gave for not believing in God and being an atheist for so many years. And then he gives us a good quote in the problem of pain that helps explain why it is that he ultimately changed his mind. And and to paraphrase, what he ultimately says is that this, this concept of pain and suffering only awakens me that I'm longing to some form of ultimate righteousness and love. The only reason I can identify it of suffering as suffering and, and wickedness or evil or whatever it is because something in my heart says that's not what it should be. And where did I get that concept? It's a really great way to begin to think about it, right? Just the fact that you and I can read through headlines and go, that's unfortunate. What is it within our heart that says that, that's not what God intended? That isn't good. How is it that we know that there's something that we should aspire to that is ultimately righteousness and ultimately loving? That desire, that tension in and of itself is evidence that God's love exists, that we're aware of it. But how do we really begin to understand what love is? And that's where my reflection this past week shifted and changed, right? Was that I I stopped looking at events and I started looking at relationships, But my question was, how do I even begin to understand the concept of love? It was through people. Let me say it like this. I have a short list of people. Every time I fly and and I get on a plane, uh, right before takeoff, I send out a couple of text messages. And, And it's a short list of people. It's my wife and, by extension, my kids, right, because they don't have phones, yeah, so anything I'm sharing with my wife, I'm saying, hey, tell the kids this as well. Uh, and it's my mom and my dad. And that's it. And it's usually the same message, about to take off, love you. And that, that's, that's all I say. Very succinct, very quick. And the whole reason I do that, though, is very morbid. Uh, because every time I get on a plane, I'm painfully aware of my own mortality. Uh, because the idea of being in a metal tube 35,000 feet above the earth is unsettling to me. And I think this could be it. Right? This could be my last day. And so with that morbid thought, here's what I think of next. What's the last thing I want to say and to who? 
And the last thing I want to say is I love you. And the list of people I want to say it to is pretty, pretty short. Now, that's not to say that I don't have more people in my life that I love. Obviously, I have my sister. I have an extended family. I have more friends and, and, and all these other folks. But in that moment, it's a short list. I think about all that I am, all that I feel within my soul and my heart. It's impossible to express, but this one word gives it power, love. And it's these relationships in my life that have opened my heart up to the power of those three amazing words, I love you. And so I want to just share some stories about those relationships this morning. And, and, I, and I share these stories um, not with the intent to draw attention to myself or, or these relationships, but because I don't know where else to go. If, if we're really going to reflect upon our understanding of love and, and realizing it's not really through events and, and anywhere else, it's through, rela- this is where I, I go. And so let me, let me start with my parents. Um, My dad and I, uh, who's here with me today, uh, when I think back on the early stages of my childhood and the fun that I had, my dad is in most of those memories. Uh, He's just always been a fun guy to be around. Uh, We would go bowling. He introduced me to Nintendo and great music. I'd be in his car that I would learn the Beatles or Wooly Bully, and we would sing it, you know, to, to as loud as we possibly could. I played catch uh, in his front yard and, and worked on pitching, even though I was never going to be a pitcher. Um, just so many great little memories. And, and one of the things I loved is every card that I got from him, he, he would refer, refer to me as Bud. And I just loved that I was my dad's Bud. Um, and we had this game when I was real young where we would go back and forth. We would say, I love you more than you love me. And whoever said it, the next person would respond and say, no, I, I love you more than you love me. We'd go back and forth and have this little love competition, you know. Now, I've, I've shared with you all before, my parents divorced when I was two. And um, growing up, I knew that my relationship was different. Um, and, and it was not filled with perfection, as you all might guess. There are just as many times where there were hurt feelings and arguments and mistakes. But as I grew older and I reflected upon all those fond memories, what I realized was that my dad has always been there for me. Always. I'm 37 years old, and there's not one day, not one moment, not one hour of my life where I've questioned his love for me. And my mom, it's it's somewhat similar, right? For for her, it was the, the book she would read us before bed, um, she was a reading teacher, and so she, and my, she would take me and my sister and read us books. I remember truly being transported to another world when she read Hatchet for the first time, and I just was amazed by that story, or how emotional she got at the end of Stone Fox, if you've ever read that one. Um, it's, it's the thousands of oatmeal raisin cookies and apple crisps and uh, what was one of my favorite breakfasts, French toast, which we called in my home syrup toast. And just the many ways she, she provided that sense of comfort and love through even food. It was the traditions she taught us, especially this time of year. I loved getting the snow village out and, and spending time, getting the house decorated for Christmas. I loved that she would play ping pong with me and shoot hoops with me, even though I knew she didn't really have that kind of time. 
just all these conversations, thousands of conversations of what it meant to be a friend or the importance of family. But when I think about my mom, um, probably where it was the most impactful for me were on those hard days. You know, when you're younger and you, and you go through pains for the first time, like when I lost my grandfather in junior high and how hard that was. And I remember sitting in the funeral service and the pastor saying a word about my grandfather that just reminded me of my relationship with him. And all I wanted to do was lay down on that pew and cry and put my, mom, my head in my mom's lap. She was the only one I wanted in that moment. And how many heartaches I've been through, how many struggles were the only person that really I could turn to was mom. And that was the thing that both my parents taught me, this consistency. What I, what I realized in reflecting about it was there wasn't this one climactic moment where I went, oh, that's, that's where I first learned about my parents' love. It was a thousand little things over and over again that consistently said, I'm there for you. It was there that I learned what it meant to be loved as a child. And I was introduced to the power of these three words, I love you. And my wife was very different, very different sort of story, right? I remember um, hearing a lot about Jennifer. All my friends had crushes on her, which made it very interesting when I decided to date her. They weren't very thrilled with me, um, but she had just this reputation. She was an incredible girl. And she and I didn't even really know each other, but I would you know, be home on break during my early years of college and people would ask me about relationships and for whatever reason, her name would always come to mind. And I would think, why is that? I don't even know this girl. Why do I keep thinking about Jennifer Hoffines, you know? Sure enough, as fate would have it, our paths start to intersect and uh, we start to, to date. And I remember being about four or five months into the relationship. I think I may have shared this with you guys a couple years ago. Four or five months into the relationship, there we are, we're standing in Dale Hall, which is one of the main buildings on, at OU. Uh, Boomer, by the way. That's the only one I'm doing, okay? And we're standing outside class, and I'm talking to her, and I have no idea what we're talking about, but I remember distinctly in that moment thinking, I have no idea where this relationship is going to go. No clue if it's going to, to continue on from here. But what I know is I'm never going to find another girl like her. And, and she had set the bar. And that was the beginning of me falling in love with her. And that's what makes it so different than what I experienced as a child, right? Because you don't get to choose your parents. I mean, that, that's, that's just a love you're kind of given. But when you fall in love with a spouse, this is you seeking someone out, finding someone, seeking to know everything about them and saying, I'm going to give everything to you. And, and love you. And that's a, a, a fascinating, incredibly important decision. And so that's the sort of love that we've had for what has now been 15 years of marriage. And now we have numerous moments of how we've tried to demonstrate that love through experiences, through shared stories. We, we've been very fortunate. We've gone on mission trips to Costa Rica. We saved all of our reward points when we were young and didn't have kids and both worked and went to Italy. We, we've been able to go to New Orleans. We've been able to go to New York. We have all these really cool, extravagant memories that we can draw upon. But just as precious to us are those moments when we're sitting on the couch in our pajamas watching Netflix and, and we're binge watching 24 or we're laughing until we cry because of Jim Gaffigan or we're just laughing because of parenthood, 
or crying because of parenthood, excuse me. It's a tear-jerking show, man. And, and, and just all those times together, and, and then our conversations, hundreds of conversations about life, about friendships, about dreams, about parenting, about PTA drama, which ironically enough is a lot like church drama, and what are we going to do about all these different things, and our hopes, just all these conversations that have also been difficult from time to time. Conversations about what's hurt us, how to find forgiveness, how to get better, how to change. And and what I have seen probably most profoundly in this relationship are those moments when I've seen Jennifer hurting. And I don't mean physically, but more emotionally. Distinct memories that I won't go into the details today, but where I've looked and I've thought I would do anything to take that away from her. And that that's me learning what it's like to love as a husband. To do whatever I can to take away that pain. And we were about two and a half years into our marriage when we started having the conversation about kids. And that one kind of freaked me out because I wasn't ready. I was happy with just the two of us. It is a monumentous decision, right? What is it, Elizabeth Stone, who I think once said that deciding to have a child is like forever deciding to have your heart walking around outside of your body. I didn't realize how true that was until we had them. And it it was a long, difficult road for that to happen, but I'll never forget uh, this moment, sitting up in our little upper playroom near the piano with music going, and we had just brought home James, our firstborn, and I'm holding him in in my arm, he literally can fit in my forearm, and I'm singing to him, and my heart literally wants to explode, and I've never felt anything like it before. I think that's what's so interesting about this part of love, is it's like you finally begin to understand all those little things your parents did for you, and and you're now experiencing it with somebody that you chose to love forever. And, and it's like these two streams kind of merging into this one powerful river. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. And, and I'm being swept away with what it means to be a dad. And then Annabelle comes along, and, and Jennifer got sick after Annabelle's delivery. And so, uh, unfortunately, she had to go back into the hospital. And I, that meant I kind of became one of Annabelle's primary caregivers in those moments. And I remember in, we were in the hospital, and I would take her, and I'd put her in a stroller, and we'd go through these walks around the hospital lobby. I just talked to her, sing to her. I mean, immediately, instantaneously, she was daddy's little girl and forever will be. And, and those two kids, like, they hadn't done anything, right? You know, I mean, it's not like I was like, well, you're gonna have to earn it, right? Let me see, let me see how this plays out. T- check in with me when you're 18. Just loved them. And that's amazingly what we experienced with our recent adoption. You know, adoption's weird because there's so many unknowns that you just, you don't know how the child's gonna react, you don't know how you're gonna react. You, you have all these fears. Am I really gonna love the same way that I love these other children? I mean, they're just legitimate fears, concerns. I remember us seeing Wu for the first time in this, this room and, watching the way my family was reacting, seeing the excitement and the, the joy and the laughter. 
seeing Wu walk in and us meeting him. And he's just such a loving heart. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't timid. He wanted to play. But then his reality kind of began to set in, and we left. You could see he was scared. And knowing him like we know him now, I mean, it was fascinating because he's one of the toughest kids I've ever seen in my life. Because in that fear, he didn't lash out. He didn't throw a tantrum, didn't, didn't cry. He just kept it all within. And he was just, he was just quiet and still. I mean, he took immediately to Jennifer. And that was a saving grace. She just hold him. He didn't want to leave her arms. He didn't know what to do with me. He really didn't. And, and he wasn't resistant to me. It wasn't like against me or anything. But I realized in, in those moments, those first few days, I think a big part of it was he, he didn't know what I was. He, he didn't really have any interaction with a grown male. It was all females. And so he was trying to process, who is this guy? What, what, what is this sort of relationship? And I remember Jennifer took Annabelle down to Starbucks in our hotel lobby while we were in China. And it was the first time I really had with Wu one-on-one and James was up there. And I just started wrestling with Wu, throwing him on the bed, playfully tackling him. I mean, and he just loved it. And that was the moment that we really began to to connect. And in those first days, one of the things that surprised me the most is I just loved him because he was my son, one of my very own, no different. And I think where I probably recognized this the most profoundly was, you know, Wu had a cleft lip, bilateral cleft lip and palate, so his, his lip hadn't fully formed. And uh, we knew that was going to be something we needed to address, but as we got to know him, that became one of our favorite features of Wu. Because his smile was so powerful and so uniquely beautiful. And we loved it so much to the point that really almost every one of us in the family, we kind of grieved when it was fixed. And, and part of my grief when that happened was that I wanted him to know I loved him just like he was. He was perfect already. And I wanted him to be able to talk, you know. But I loved him just like he was. And that's where I began to really understand what it means to love as a father. To love you just as you are. And I got a whole new insight to these three powerful words of I love you. Now, as I share stories like this today, I would anticipate there's a couple of different groups and reactions out there. Some of you probably immediately relate and empathize. You can almost insert yourself into these stories. You think about your parents, think about your spouse, think about your children. All the ways that they showed you the power of those words opened your heart up to love. And how grateful you can be for those memories and those relationships. And if that's you, I I want you to just take a few seconds where you are right now And I just want you to say thank you to God for those people. Just thank you. You have people in your life that have opened your heart up to what it means to hear, I love you. I'd also imagine there's maybe a second group of people that haven't had the opportunity for a variety of different reasons to connect with some of these relationships. For whatever reason, you don't know your parents, Maybe you've never been married. Maybe you haven't had children. 
And, and if that's you, let me be very clear that in no way are my stories trying to imply you've missed out on anything because you haven't. You haven't at all. And let me remind you that, that you're in great company, that the scriptures affirm that sort of life and, and even uh, those sorts of experiences to the point that Jesus never had children, never married. Paul never had children, never married. So in no way are you missing anything. The reality is, is that you probably have a list. It may look different, but you have a list that you would send out and say, if this was it, this is the last thing I could say, here's who I'd send it to. I love you. And you have people in your life who have opened your heart towards love. And if that's you, I want you to take just a few moments and I want you to thank God for them. Now the third group, maybe a little bit more difficult. This other group, you may be here today and you think about parents or spouses or children and you've been hurt. The people that were in your life that were there to show you love didn't. The people that were there that should have cherished you hurt you instead. And so now you're in a place where maybe you feel alone and you don't know that you have a list. And if that's you, the first thing I want you to hear me say is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's been your experience. And the second thing I want you to hear me say is that we want to be your list. We want to be your family. We want to be the people to help you understand the power of those words, I love you. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to thank God for you. Now here's the common denominator in all those groups. No matter how you've experienced love, it's all been imperfect. Every single one of those relationships has had its flaws. As great as parents or spouses or children can be, they are terrible saviors. They're not to be our hope, they're to point us to hope. They are to be signposts that point us to a more perfect, ultimate love. Right? The reason we have these relationships is not that we would love them ultimately, but that they would lead us towards a greater understanding of ultimate love. See, here's what's amazing about the scripture is God does all this amazing stuff to reveal the nature of his love for you and me. Many images, many pictures, and several of them are the ones that we've referenced today. You are children of God. Christ loves the church like a groom waiting for his bride and gives himself up for her. A father's love. We have a God that we can call Father. And so when we think about these pictures of, of being a child of God, when we think about all these things, part of what God is wanting us to see is when we go through those experiences in our life and we have these incredible moments with our parents that remind us that, that they're there for us, that is a signpost to say, that's how I love you. 
That's God saying, I'm always there for you. When we find someone in our life that we can say, I'm, I'm gonna give everything to you to try to take away your pain, to try to take away those things that hurt you, that is Christ looking in at us saying, I'm gonna do everything I can to remove your shame and your hurt. When we have that sense of loving a child just as they are, that is our God saying, and so have I loved you. These are the signposts to this ultimately perfect divine love. That's how you know that God's love exists and it has the potential to fill every human heart on earth. And that's what allows us to say the earth is full of his unfailing love. This is where we find a love that is so perfect, one that is always patient. His love is always kind. His love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It doesn't dishonor, it is not self-seeking. His love is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. God's love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God's love never fails. That's what he's pointing you to. (laughs) And my hope is that when you hear that, it encourages you, but you go, but how do I know this is true? How do I trust this? And that's what makes Advent so insanely beautiful. You wanna know how to have that assurance? You wanna know how to trust it with every fiber of your being and walk the road to Bethlehem. Look at the star shining in the sky. Hear the announcement of the angels. Come and look upon this manger scene of this innocent child that will ultimately give his life for you. Take in this promise that he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Come to Advent and see the truth that God so boldly declares, the power of these three amazing words. I love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the people in our lives who have shown us your love, that have awakened our hearts to what it means to love and to be loved. And so God, we ask that you would allow our hearts to take those precious memories and those incredible experiences and allow us to see your heart more clearly. Allow us to come into this Advent season with an assurance that that love that you've allowed us to have and to experience firsthand is really pointing us to this ultimate divine love that can only be found in you. And so for those who have been the beneficiaries of such love, God, we are grateful. For those who have perhaps been hurt by those earthly relationships that should have been those signposts. God, I pray that you would heal them, 
and give them the assurance that you are enough and you provide all the love that they could ever need. And that as we are encouraged in that today as a church, as a family, God, that our hearts would overflow with praise and we would be able to worship you and declare how great is your love. We'd be able to come and adore you. We would give you all the glory and we would go into this world and convey this message of hope, this message of the manger scene, this truth that you've declared with word taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And we are loved. And for that, God, we are forever grateful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.